right now on Matter of Fact. I'm taking my neighbor to pick up her daughters and I hear bow, bow. A Chicago community riddled with gun violence. I asked the police if I could respond because I was right here. Bystanders jumping in to treat the wounded. It took about a good 25 minutes for the EMT to get there. A look at the impact of a program. Let's talk tourniquets. That's training neighbors to step in when every second matters. Plus, he's a historian who put more than 3,000 textbooks to the test. I was stunned because of this emphasis on whiteness to the exclusion of everything else. Meet the Harvard researcher who says it's time to admit that history has been whitewashed. And you told yourself you'd lose some weight, be better with money, and make more me time. What is the number one thing that kills your chances of being successful in resolution? A life coach gives her best advice for sticking to your New Year's resolutions. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. It is not the kind of reputation you want, but Chicago is known as a city plagued with violence. It ended 2022 with more than 700 homicides. That's down more than 10% from the previous year. Shooting victims in parts of Chicago face long odds of surviving. The neighborhoods with the highest rates of gun violence have slower ambulance response times, a shortage of hospitals and trauma centers, and a police force that's not required to administer first aid. One grassroots community organization is trying to improve chances for survival. Ujima Medics is teaching neighborhood residents, including high school students, how to treat gunshot wounds at the scene. Our correspondent, Laura Chavez, has their story from Chicago's South Side. I don't leave out the house if it's too late. I lock my doors. I'm always trying to be aware of my surroundings, looking at body language. Tremaine Jones is a mother of four and fears the impact of gun violence on herself, her kids, and her community. She tells me when her six-year-old hears sirens. He panics. He's, he starts crying, he starts shaking. Tremaine's family knows loss. In 2014, three of her cousins were confronted by an armed man. The guy said something they didn't know. They didn't think he was talking to them. They kept walking and he had a weapon. All three of them just ran in different directions and he shot Marcus. He expired. Marcus was like my best friend. Marcus's death led Tremaine to Ujima Medics. She became a trainer for the organization which teaches neighbors, mainly on Chicago's South Side, how to help someone hurt by gun violence. Born out of tragedy, the program was co-founded by Amika Tendaji and Martine Caverell. It was the death of Damian Turner. He was shot a few blocks away from the U University of Chicago Medical Center. Turner, an 18-year-old community organizer, died in the ambulance on his way to the nearest trauma center about 45 minutes away. What could it have meant if someone there knew how to help him. We have no idea if it could have saved his life, but maybe. These questions inspired a series of workshops, including basic gunshot first response. The goal of that workshop is to help the participants know how to increase someone's chances of surviving if they're shot, 
but also how to reduce chances for emotional injury. We always say we hope that the participants never really have to use the hard skills. Over the past five years, Ujima Medics has trained more than 3,000 people at church groups, businesses, and in high school classrooms. So let's talk tourniquets. Joey is 25 and has been a Ujima Medics trainer since he was a student. Why are you doing this at a high school? I believe that this is the perfect group to, to be talking to about to gun violence, especially seeing it's just statistically there at the center. What's going on through your head when you're looking at them and thinking, some of you can't even drive or vote. It isn't the learning just how to turn a tourniquet, right, or apply direct pressure to a wound that's gonna carry somebody through survival. However, it is the knowing that somebody is here for you. Can one of you call the police, please? These programs like Ujima Medics or my MedKey program really resonate well because the youth understand that they're the highest risk to suffering these emergencies. Dr. Abdullah Pratt is an emergency medicine physician at UChicago Medicine. Isn't there a risk in saying like, hey, we taught this civilian how to do this. Couldn't they possibly be creating more problems for you? I've never seen a situation where lay bystanders trying to help actually contributed to someone uh, suffering more mortality or morbidity or dying because of that. We all are in the same battle to try to give resources and equip the community with a high level of health literacy. It's just that this health literacy is focused on our youth, where the leading cause of death for 16 and 24-year-olds is gun violence, especially here uh, on the south side of Chicago. We talked a little bit about what the world you're trying to create, be it a safe home with a close family, but there's going to be a time when they go out into the world. We are in America and we are plagued with gun violence and we need to start somewhere. Anything can happen at any moment. And so teaching your kids how to respond to trauma is actually a good tool to use as a, as a parent, regardless of your background, your race, what community you're a part of. Heat blood. Heat blood. In the body. In the body. In Chicago, I'm Laura Chavez for Matter of Fact. We reached out to the Chicago Police Department for comment. Their statement in part says, quote, We remain committed to working with outreach and violence prevention organizations, which play an important role in strengthening safety across all of our neighborhoods. End quote. Next on Matter of Fact. Life happened, and I fell off the bandwagon for a few months. Are you having trouble keeping your New Year's resolutions? How long does it take to turn your resolution or your dream or your hope or your manifestation into an actual habit? What this life coach says about her blueprint to help you reach your goals. Plus, a researcher evaluates the history textbooks your children read. Textbooks are the embodiment of what we value in our culture. Why this historian is concerned about what's being taught in classrooms. And later, it's the opposite of the express lane at the grocery store. We take you inside the supermarket, creating a checkout where customers can take their time. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine.
People like to say new year, new me, seeing the new year as a time for renewal. I like to talk about a relaunch, but less than two weeks into 2023, many people have already given up on their New Year's resolutions. In fact, there's something called National Quitters Day. It was on January 13th, and that date is based on research from Strava, a social network for athletes. So what if there were tools to make sure you stick to your goals and you follow through on your aspirations? Mariko Bennett is a strategist, a life coach, and the author of The Blueprint to Manifest Your Dreams. Mariko Bennett, nice to talk to you. So New Year's is my favorite holiday, literally. And I make easily 30, maybe more, resolutions every single year. And I'd say my rate of success is, is decent-ish. Is 30 too many, do you think? What would your advice be to me, for example, to making sure that I can actually achieve all the things that I'm trying to do on my list? Is 30 too much? Absolutely. No, we're not going to do 30. I look at a resolution like I'm setting an intention. But when I want to manifest something, I have a process for it. So you look at the seven life focus areas, physical body, mindset, relationships, professional, financial, social, and spiritual. And so when I look at that, that's like whole body well-being, all of life. Manifesting is when you actually have a vision and you actually begin to implement it in your life. That vision comes to life. How long does it take to turn your resolution or your dream into an actual habit? Like how many times you have to go to the gym before you're like, yep, I can take this off my list because now I love my trainer, I run to go meet him, it's, it's done. Oh man, it's a lifestyle. I had physical body, hit all the goals, looked great, and then guess what? Life happens. And I fell off the bandwagon for a few months. But the thing is, if you have a dream and a vision for yourself that you want to manifest, it's okay to rest. Sometimes you have to put it down. But when you're checking in on it, you remember to pick it back up. It sounds like you're saying you actually have to like sit down and daily work on the goals you want to get to, which is why 30 is probably too many. That's exactly right. 100%. You have to continue to track it. A lot of times we'll have goals in areas that aren't natural for us. It's more difficult for us to achieve them. And that's why they're a goal. And that's why we have to work on them. Have you found that people's resolutions or their visions for their lives have changed since the pandemic? Some people did have to pivot. And yes, because certain things that mattered before pre-pandemic, it changed. You know, we all got into physical body. Um, folks were like, let me get my mindset together. Let me get my body together. Um, and so I definitely saw an intake there. What is the number one thing that kills your chances of being successful in resolution? Uh, quitting and self-doubt. I'm a perfectionist, and so that held me back oftentimes. So one of my affirmations, because I do believe you have to affirm yourself, sometimes you have to tell yourself, I can do this. Um, but because I'm a perfectionist, I told myself, I will not let pretty and perfect get in the way of my progress. Mariko Bennett, thank you very much for your advice. I appreciate it. I'm feeling very strong now going into the, the new year with my resolutions. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and a pleasure. Coming up, this historian's book is called Teaching White Supremacy. The title is pretty provocative. 
It is, but descriptive and accurate. A look at the research he calls undeniable. Plus, do you live in an urban setting or a rural one? Why the government may have reclassified your hometown. exactly is your child learning in the classroom? Well, that curriculum depends on where your family lives. This past year, at least six states, South Dakota, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, and Florida, passed laws restricting what schools can teach about race, bias, or identity. During the latest election cycle, a number of Republican candidates falsely claimed critical race theory and anti-whiteness is being taught in public schools. In fact, Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research found evidence of the exact opposite. American public education has a long history of teaching white supremacy. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, has more on textbook racism in the classroom. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Noah Webster, that's the dictionary Webster. All great writers we think of as progressive, but a closer look at their writings, and those of many others, finds shocking ties to the ideals of white supremacy? They're all using the same kind of language in describing and dismissing people of African descent. All of them. But wait, I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's stunning. That's Donald Yakovon, historian and author of a new book, Teaching White Supremacy, who recognizes that what he's got to say sounds like heresy. It wasn't intended that way. I didn't, didn't know I was doing that uh, until it happened. Uh, but it is an assault on the way we understand our culture and ourselves. Yakovon was deep into research on another book when, just for fun, he went to the library to check out some old textbooks. But then you went down a rabbit hole. It, it was like Alice in Wonderland. I fell in, and it was in a completely different world. I saw this collection of 3,000 textbooks, and I was stunned. I just wasn't expecting that. Yes, he said 3,000 textbooks, dating back to the early 1800s, all the way up to current texts. This is just a fraction of the books you look oh, at. I, <laughs> an infinitesimal uh, fraction of all the ones that I looked at. And the recurring themes, he says, were taught to generations of American school kids? The achievements of black Americans and other non-whites were consistently ignored. African Americans were portrayed as incapable of learning or achieving even well after the Civil War, and it got worse. Here's how a textbook used in the late 20th century described enslaved people. They loved to sing and dance. They were generally blessed with a keen sense of humor. And this is the tough part. And a certain amount of promiscuity was taken for granted. Slave women rarely resisted the advances of white men, as their numerous mulatto progeny abundantly attested. That's a high school textbook from the 1940s, which Yakovon says was still in use decades later in classrooms across the country. Textbooks contained old tropes because a handful of publishers have traditionally dominated the industry. And two states, California and Texas, because they buy so many, have outsized influence on what goes into books. So if the 
Texas education. Doesn't approve of a textbook or, or a certain section of the textbook, it gets rewritten. Still, he says the blame for racist textbooks doesn't lie solely in conservative southern states. Remember those early thought leaders from the progressive Northeast? Yakovon argues their writing shapes what we have all learned. The textbooks are the embodiment of what we value in our culture. This is what we're teaching kids. Yeah, what we value. And if what we value is white supremacy, then <laughs> the damage is considerable. And that's a tough lesson to unlearn. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ahead on Matter of Fact, how the U.S. Census Bureau is redefining where you live. And later, a supermarket checkout where you can take your sweet time. Why this grocery store is telling customers to skip the express lane and slow down. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Do you live in an urban setting or a rural one? The U.S. Census Bureau has recently changed the definitions. Here's a little history. The terms were first used by the Census Bureau for a map back in 1874. The Statistical Atlas of the U.S. used dots to represent places with populations of more than 8,000 and called them urban. Then in 1906, the Bureau put the cutoff point between rural and urban at 2,500, and that's been the definition till now. Using the 2020 census, urban is now defined as a place with 2,000 or more housing units or 5,000 or more people. That reclassifies 4.2 million people as rural Americans. Why does it matter? Well, the changes are intended to make government funding follow the population's needs. In rural areas, things like money for small town health clinics and in cities, grants for more mass transit. Government investments in everything from infrastructure to low-income housing and broadband, all distributed based on the definitions. And that can impact the quality of life wherever you live. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, an escape from our fast-paced world. Inside a supermarket? How a grocery store is encouraging people to slow down and chat. a supermarket checkout where you can take your sweet time. A Dutch grocery chain called Jumbo created what they call a chat checkout, invented especially for older shoppers. It's a place where seniors can visit with a cashier without feeling rushed. Jumbo is a family business. They believe its supermarkets are the heart of the community. They opened the first chat checkout back in 2019, and it has been so successful that they're planning to open 200 more by the fall. Jumbo has also started chat corners in several of their supermarkets, places to sit down, have a cup of coffee, meet your neighbors. Isolation is one of the biggest challenges for retirees everywhere. The Dutch Health Ministry even created a national coalition against loneliness. So think of the chat checkout as a place for much needed human contact. It's an idea that I hope comes to America. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.